Hi, I'm Susan Clark. And I'm Chris Marie Campbell. Welcome to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. Have you ever wanted to take some of what you've learned on the podcast to the next level? Well, check out our new step-by-step, easy-to-use team kit to get your team from avoiding conflict to discovering the beauty in conflict. To learn more, go to www.thriving.com forward slash team kit. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash T-E-A-M-K-I-T. Hi, I'm Chris Marie Campbell. And I'm Susan Clark. And today we have a very special guest, Alan Weiss, who is a PhD, is a consultant, speaker, and author. Through his consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, he has worked with more than 500 leading organizations, including Merck, HP, GE, Mercedes-Benz, the Federal Reserve, and the New York Times Corporation. A lot of heavy hitters. He has published 60 books, many of which have been on the Circa at the top business schools. His new book, Sentient Strategy, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies in Turbulent Economies, is what's released now and what we were reading. And you can learn more about him at alanweiss.com. So welcome, Alan. We're excited to have you. I appreciate being here. Yes. Cool. I mean, I have been enjoying the book. I will say I have not totally, I'm probably about two thirds of the way through. I've been diving into it in different ways, thinking about us and thinking about other clients we work with. So that's been kind of fun. And I'm excited to hear more about how you put this together. So, and even your whole idea about strategic planning is an oxymoron. Maybe you could start even that because it seems like that's a, a big theme in your new book. Yes. Well, planning comes from the bottom up. And so people judge what their quota should be next year, their performance, their output, their results. And then they tell their management tends to be conservative, cuts it back so they're not held to too high a goal. Then senior management cuts it back. By the time it gets to executives, they're in handcuffs and you have 1% growth, right? Strategy is top down and you paint a picture of the future and you don't worry for the moment about tactics and how you'll get there. If you're really a purist on strategy, you just talk about what you want to become. And the reason I developed this particular approach is I've always been a big fan of Peter Drucker, who I think was a brilliant guy. And then I started to think about though, pre-pandemic, I realized that he invented strategy in the 50s at General Motors with Sloan and that it was now 70 years old. (laughs) I get it. Enough, you know? So maybe it was time to think of something else. And then the pandemic hit. And so I decided I would create a strategic approach that didn't have the hallucination of looking five and 10 and 20 years in the future but looked a year out and didn't have the ridiculous protocol of spending weeks and weeks formulating something that then sat in a physical book or an electronic book, nicely indexed that nobody ever looked at. So you can set the strategy in a day virtually or in person. If you want to take two days, fine, but that's it. And it was a much more organic approach. You use this normally. And I'll say one more thing, and that is in my consulting career with these heavy hitters you talked about and a lot of smaller businesses as well, I never saw a situation where someone was evaluated and they were told you had a great quarter financially. We're very happy. However, you didn't make progress toward your strategic goals and that's not good. That never happened. What happened was they ignored the strategic goals. They rewarded them on short-term quarterly financial results. And so I felt that with a really effective organic kind of strategy, you could make headway because people would be held accountable. I know in the book, you talked about this idea of what you're just saying kind of speaks to that of what came first, the chicken or the egg, and the idea that long-term goals versus short-term goals. And I really liked, of course, it short-term means the egg because people have to eat. It's kind of the gist of what I thought I took away from that when the question gets asked. Is that kind of where your ideas really need to focus? Well, the, sure. 
the differences between short-term tactical goals and strategic goals. Strategic goals can be short-term or long-term. There's this fallacy that strategy has to be long-term tactics, short-term. That's not true. You can have long-term tactics. But the difference is distinguishing between the two. You know, I've done a lot of work on boards. I've been president of boards. I've served on boards. And boards are notorious, especially in the nonprofit world, for this kind of statement. Well, let's have a fundraiser. We need to raise funds. Okay. Let's decide if we should serve chicken or veal at the dinner. Right? <laughs> I'm curious. That's a decision for people four levels down the line, you know, who are in charge of the damn event. But no, no, no. The board wants to get involved with that. So, you know, I would make a demand and say, look, we're running this as a business. We're not going to discuss hows. We'll only discuss what's. And if you can simply create that kind of line of demarcation, you make a great deal of progress toward intelligently discussing strategy. I also was aware you talked about also the idea of vision, mission, values, and really that being in the wrong order. And I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit as well, because I know that's a big thing we bump into in different ways of people thinking about it. So Yeah, the key thing about mission is that it's the raison d'etre. It's why you're there. And so if you go to a company like Merck, one of my largest clients over the years, George Merck originally said, do good and good will follow. And Merck's mission was to bring the greatest in healthcare research against the greatest areas of human healthcare need. And that's why they're there. And that's how they judge their effectiveness. You know, IBM stands for International Business Machine. They weren't in the business machine business, though. They were in the information transfer business. If they were in the business machine business, they'd be out of business today. You know, remember the punch cards of the whole business. Today, IBM makes most of their money through consulting services. And so you have to understand that mission is raison d'etre. Vision is the site in the future that helps you understand you're meeting your mission. That's why I think they're out of order. And so your vision reinforces that indeed you're fulfilling your mission. And as far as values are concerned, come on. I mean, this comes out of a successories category. We value our employees. We value our customers. You know, we value this. I've never seen a company that said, you know, well, one of our values is unethical behavior. We'd really like to <laughs> get better at that. You know, I had a hospital client and I don't every blank wall, there was a statement of their values. And the fourth value down was, you know, we, we value our employees. Well, in front of these signs, you could see managers ruthlessly beating employees, you know, metaphorically beating employees. And the CEO said to me, you know, why is morale so low? We state our values. I said, Bill, do you think people believe what they read on the walls or what they see in the halls? And that's the difference. That's why I think, as you point out, that the values, vision, mission, vision, whatever it is, have always been in the wrong order. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I kind of get the gist and... From looking at this, the biggest piece that's sort of there is looking at those factors of consciousness, the consciousness line, and then the where you are in the environment, right? Yeah, kind the, of consciousness, the, the consciousness of the impact of your actions yeah. and awareness of the environment in which you operate. Those are the two basic axes, yes. Can you walk us through so our listeners have like concrete examples like you were doing with Merck? Because I think that helps paint that picture more. Sure. So awareness of the impact of your actions means that you don't just make arbitrary decisions, but you understand how those decisions reflect on the employees, the customers, the suppliers, the investors, and so forth and so on. I think an organization that does that very, very well, for example, is JetBlue. JetBlue has decided that they're not going to have airport lounges, which are all the rage, but they don't have an airport lounge like American does, United does, now American Express does, and so forth. However, if you go to a normal gate for a JetBlue flight, it's clean, there are free recharging stations. There's often coffee. There are magazines and newspapers. And if a JetBlue flight is late, as soon as I learn of it, they inform you. 
And they yeah. say to you, we're going to be 20 minutes late. Here's why. And here's what you can expect. So they really understand the impact of their actions. An understanding of the environment, the other axis, means that you're conscious, despite your actions, despite your decisions, of the environment in which you operate because environments change. And so today, we're in an environment of much more sensitivity and acknowledgement of the need for social justice, for example. And so people are, are at least smart people and good companies, understand that. But if you take a look at these two axes and you think of the trouble that Target got in and Budweiser got in and the Los Angeles Dodgers got in, I mean, I can go on and on. Budweiser lost something like 28% of its market share. Disney down you know, in Florida with the governor there. And so you see organizations stumbling through this because they don't take into account these two things. I'll give you one more example, which to me is fascinating. Drucker said for a long time, and I, I think he's absolutely right, that the Girl Scouts of America was one of the best run organizations anywhere, for-profit and non-profit. And this was an organization, now in my terminology, very aware, very conscious of its actions and very conscious of the environment in which it operated. The Boy Scouts, which is basically engaged in the same thing, scouting, have been horrible. Yes. <laughs> Horrible. And these, these two organizations are in the, the same business, so to speak. So the Boy Scouts made horrible decisions about hiding or ignoring harassment and sexual activities and inappropriate behavior and illegalities and so forth. Their decision lately, in the last couple of years, is to admit women into the Boy Scouts. So here are two organizations engaged in the same thing. One sort of sterling and the other not. I mean, look what happened with the pandemic. You can't have Girl Scouts selling door to door during the pandemic. So they did other things. Now, I mentioned JetBlue. JetBlue and United are in the same business. They often are on the same routes. Yet United has had a terrible record in terms of people's luggage being lost, in terms of being on time. And United says things like, well, you know, it was the weather. When the last time I looked, JetBlue and American and Delta flew through the same weather. <laughs> so apparently the weather gods had it out for United or perhaps... United is in a special trouble because when the pandemic hit, they let their pilots go. They didn't say, here's part-time fees, part-time salary. You know, hey, and they will bring you back. No, no, no. And so they had a great deal of trouble attracting pilots. Again, have to pay $100,000 bonuses to get them back. So this is really bad decision-making. When the pandemic hit, I had just become a president of Ballet, Rhode Island. And it was in bad shape, almost bankrupt. And I had a lot of problems. And we have other great arts groups up here, you know, the Philharmonic and two great regional theaters. But I said to the ballet, we're not closing our doors. The others closed the doors. I said, we're dancing. And we danced in uh, parking lots and we danced in drive-in movie theaters. We danced in people's homes. We danced in concert halls that would normally hold 2,000 and only would admit 200. But we kept dancing. So we kept the troupe together. We didn't lose our pilots. We kept the troupe together and we let people know we were there. And so we were clearly aware of the environment. We did things virtually as well. But the impact of our decision-making was that the public was constantly aware we were there. They continued to donate funds. We continued to get grants. The dancers stayed together. And when I left after three years, it was in its strongest position in history. And that's with very adverse condition. Now, I'm not saying that's strictly because of me, but I am saying it's because of a philosophy. And that's why I think looking at strategy this way as an organic help to the business is very important. Yeah, right. So what would you say to those businesses that are struggling with it? economic headwinds post-COVID and how to actually keep their be the ballet? <laughs> you know, a very counterintuitive response to that. One of the interesting things that we learned during tough times and during the pandemic was that businesses that were in trouble 
some of them raised their fees and did better. Wow. And people believe they get what they pay for. And so we talk a lot about disruption and volatility. It means great name for a law firm, right? Disruption and volatility. These are my lawyers. But we hide from it. We defend ourselves against it. So my answer to your question is this, which is, I think is counterintuitive. Those businesses have to create volatility and create disruption. And when you do that, you can dominate your marketplace because everybody else is trying to catch up or protect themselves. And if you don't think that's possible, look at Uber. If you don't think that's possible, look at Amazon. Go back and look at FedEx when Fred Smith first started it. Apple. These are all organizations that have done extraordinarily well because they deliberately disrupted and maintained a certain volatility in the market. These aren't evil terms. And so we shouldn't try to defend ourselves. We should try to use them as business weapons. Now, I would think in what you're talking about there, that's got a lot to do with paying attention to the environment and being aware of the environment. Because some of these ones you're mentioning, you also put them in different categories in your book. And I think because there's also can be some level, you have to actually then also stay conscious, that consciousness factor of the impact you're having on things. Because I think you talked about how the way you described Uber is a great example. And yet they also did some mismanagement in terms of how they were hiring and working with. And similar, even I think you kind of brought that up a little bit with Amazon because you put them in a different category that partially because of I can't remember what these talk us through that. Yeah, yes, you know, but yes. let's let the rest of us in on it. <laughs> okay, so, but that's the good point you're making. So in Uber's case, which you raised first, that's what I call conformist innovation because Uber's a glorified taxi service. And so what they did was improve on taxi services. And they did that with technology and with publicity and so forth. And they did it extraordinarily well. However, what they failed to do well in terms of the impact of their decision-making is they were not careful enough in their growth to slow down a little bit and vet their drivers better. And so you had sexual harassment, you had attacks, uh, you had accidents, and they got a real black eye in some venues because of this. And finally, they started to get their act together. Amazon, which is a case of non-conformist innovation. I mean, uh, they started out as a bookseller and they realized that distribution service was more important than their product. And so now you can buy cauliflower or tires or anything from Amazon. And so they're intensely aware of their environment and the people's need for immediate delivery and speed and remote ability to buy and so forth. You know, if when I get off the interview with you, I ordered a book, it'll be here tomorrow morning from Amazon. I mean, that's how they move. However, they had instances in terms of their, let's just say, insensitivity about their decision-making where people in the warehouses didn't have a break long enough to reach the restroom and 15 minutes wasn't enough to get there and come back. And then they would get a derogatory comment about that, or they'd get some kind of bad mark on their performance evaluation. Some people even had bottles in which to urinate close to their job position. Oh. Yes. So that's why Uber and Amazon, I say, you know, have a mixed kind of rating here. I'll tell you something, you know, if you want to cut this out of the interview, you can do it, but I find it fascinating. And it's this, if you look at, for example, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, I think, is acutely aware of the impact of its decision-making and actions. However, I think they're tone deaf to the environment in which they operate. On the other hand, Republicans are crystal clear on the environment in which they're operating, but they don't understand the impact of the kinds of decisions they make. Hence, they're exactly diagonal, exactly opposite, and that's why you have polarization, because they don't have anything in common. And so they both think that they're right. And I make no political judgments here. I'm just saying as an observer, as a consultant and an observer, as a scientist, I believe they fall on opposite ends of those axes. I really found that fascinating. And I agree with you. And we don't need to get into the political aspect of it, but I love that. 
And I think the same, same thing, though, could apply within a large organization where, say, research and development is at complete opposites to, say, marketing and sales. Like marketing sales might be very aware of the environment. Environment, one part of it. And research and development is more focused on getting the next product out or like, I'm trying to think of it in terms of a couple of clients we have, because I don't know if they'd be diametrically opposed, but that tension still comes up. Well, your point's excellent. Let me give you an example. What you described is absolutely true. And so when I've encountered that in my clients, my remedy has been, which works, is to put salespeople in R&D meetings and R&D people in sales meetings, keep rotating them. And they get an appreciation for what's going on across the way, right? And that pretty much mitigates the warfare and it creates an attempt to help each other get along better and to commercialize products. Now, in Congress, we have Republicans and Democrats. We just talked about Yeah. And they serve together. But Mm -hmm. the problem is this. In that private firm I just talked about, public firm, private firm I just talked about, those people are serving together on teams, right? There's a team in marketing, there's a team in R&D and so forth. But what do we call them in Congress? They're not teams, they're committees. And a team's whole point of existence is that everybody succeeds or loses together. Mm-hmm. A committee's whole point is that I'll cooperate with you to the extent I can without endangering my own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And so you can't team build a committee, <laughs> yeah. right? And they're called congressional committees. And that's why even working together on these committees, people can't seem to reach consensus. Yeah. Wow. Because they're set up. Yeah. Not would, with the same mission or uh, charter in that sense. Yeah. I think that is actually applicable even when it comes to boards, which is another group that often works in committees versus seeming like a team. They're not a team. And having been in larger the organization, especially whether it's a, let's just take nonprofit hospital organizational boards, very dispersed in terms of what their own agendas are in being on that board. And that, I think, creates a huge amount of tension, which is an interesting way, might be an interesting way to present it to them at some point. You might be at ads, you're more like Congress than you are like And you may not yeah. want to be a team, you be aware of it. There's also the problem on boards that people are appointed for different reasons. You have some people on them because they're big donors. And being a big donor doesn't necessarily mean you'll be a good board member. Yeah. Yeah, who they want for name recognition. Right. Uh, people say, oh, they must be good. I recognize that person. There are people there who simply are good people. And they say, oh, they're a nice person. Let's get this person on the board. But what you want is people who understand governance, you know, and you want people who can be instructed in governance and who can set strategy for the organization and can evaluate the executives. I mean, that's what a board is for. And so you have these varying reasons to be there and varying capabilities to serve well. So your point is well taken. I think most boards are operating at maybe 70% of effectiveness. Yeah. So, you know, our area is the beauty of conflict. We're always dealing with how to help people have the right conversation, show up, be honest. And one of the impacts, this is post-pandemic, so I'd be curious what you found is like some companies are still all remote. And so the only conversation they're having is on Zoom and that's maybe they get together once a year, maybe. And I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on how to deal with remote environments to still make them sticky and and, and innovative. Yeah. Like being able to have the and right deal with conversation. Yeah. So you mean in general, not just with strategy, right? Yeah. Strategy and tactics that are going well, on. Well, here's the thing. There's a degree of sociability that's needed in any organization that you can only get by being with people in person. You don't have to be there with person in person all the time. And we've learned that, in fact, it's not always possible. But to a large extent, people have to interact, not just on a business basis, but on a social basis. 
there is a myth that if you're in an office, you're working 40 hours a week. <laughs> you probably got 20 hours of effective time. Yeah. And that's okay. And so when people are working remotely, you can't expect that they're working 40 hours a week. 20 hours a week, again, is fine because you have even more distraction at home. Let's face it. So first of all, you have to get over the 40-hour myth. The second thing is you've got to arrange for people to get together regularly, remotely, so they can interact, but not necessarily just for meetings and formal agendas, but just to talk about things. I have an ongoing forum that operates 24-7, and my clients can gather there whenever they want and talk about marketing or politics or fees or strategy or whatever it is. And so they feel that they're in a global community of people who share the same values. Organizations need to do that with their people. But barring that, get back to your original question, if you, you know, let's say you can get people together on occasion, but on those times you can't, you have to have meetings like we're having now in this interview that aren't strictly structured. If you do have some agenda items, fine, but you've got to give people a chance to just chat and bring up things and discuss. And you can't have arbitrary timeframes because if you say we're going to meet for an hour, guess what? You might resolve what you need to in 20 minutes, but you know they're going to fill up that hour because that's what was assigned and that's what's on the calendar. Conversely, if you say, let's meet for 30 minutes, but you get some topic that's really, really important, you can't say, oh, gee, we have to stop. Let's pick this up tomorrow. And so you need a lot more flexibility. I don't necessarily believe in the rooms and all these gimmicks on Zoom. If I move my cursor here, 19 things show up in the margin, you know, I don't know what they mean. But I do think that it's important for people to see each other. And so when I do say workshops on Zoom, my demand is that everybody have that camera on, that you can't use a photo placeholder because you owe that to your colleagues. You can't be one who's sitting out like, you know, you haven't gotten dressed yet. So <laughs> everybody's camera is on and you look at each other. And unlike you, when I do my podcasts and I have my conversations on my podcast, I use a video, even though I'm just using the audio in the podcast, but it's much more effective to interact with people the way we are right now. So I think actually organizations have gotten pretty good at absorbing the remote needs and pretty good at accommodating them. But what they're not as good at is separating out those times when you really can't do it remotely. You have to do it in person. But tangentially, as an aside, these old corporate meetings where you bring 400 people together for three and a half days in some resort and you're spending $600,000 to feed them and bring in some mediocre speakers and play games like Bill Sandcastles on the beach or something, that's gone. It's just not necessary anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do think that's what we found when we work with our clients that are more, re more remote. One, bring the executive team together on a regular basis, but also that next level down, that leadership so that they can meet and greet on some sort of regular basis or develop those human connections so that when I'm on Zoom, I actually, oh, that's right. I had a beer with you and, you know, we talked about fishing or whatever it is. And I feel that sense of trust building. Well, innovation in organizations comes from frontline people. My very first book was on innovation. And it's the teller in the bank who's interacting with banking customers, not an officer. It's the doorman in front of the hotel who's the first and last person you deal with, not some executive in catering. And so that kind of customer interaction you have to have. It's one thing to have a kiosk where you come in and you check in and you get a room key or you do use your phone. Okay, you don't see the desk clerk. But I'm pretty sure you don't want a robot meeting you at the curb trying to take your baggage. And I'll tell you a funny story. I was at the Mandarin Oriental in Boston a couple of weeks ago for some business and coaching meetings. And I go down for breakfast. It's, I don't know, 630 in the morning. The elevator doors open and there's a robot about four feet tall sitting there. And it's saying, excuse me, getting off, excuse me, getting off, excuse me, getting off. 
but it was stuck on the lip of the elevator door. Oh, jeez. And so I went to move it. And then it started to say, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> and I got it off the elevator. And then it said, delivering, delivering. It had a little screen. It didn't never said thank you, you know, to me. And so I went downstairs. After breakfast, or 45 minutes later, I come back up. Same robot on my floor at the elevator says, taking elevator, taking elevator, but it never moved. Oh, oh geez. <laughs> And when I checked out, it was still there. Oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah. They got a lot of AI that they have to build in. <laughs> that's, that's a huge gap. Oh, my. I did want to talk about, because I'm not sure I totally grasped this concept. And I think it's a pretty important one. Because we this whole idea of growth, wanting to expand your reach, get new customers. And I think kind of what I took away from what you said was that you got to make sure, though, the ones you really, it's not just about growth. You want to make the hang tenors, you called them, I think, are the ones that are, you want to make sure you keep them. Don't just go get some new idea. So say more about that idea of thinking of growth. Because, right. you know. Well, hang ten comes from surfing, where the, the most, the highest risk, most exciting surfers hang their toes over the end. So it's called hang ten. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. There you go. I teach every day. But, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And mm-hmm. to grow requires innovation. So a lot of people get on a plateau and they say, oh, I'm doing well. This is fine. I'm very happy. But because of the laws of entropy, all plateaus erode. And the only way I've ever seen people coast is downhill. You can't coast uphill. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Right? So yeah. growth is needed for any organization to bring in new blood, to bring in excitement and so forth. And to have growth, you need innovation. I said before, there are different kinds of innovation. There's opportunism, there's conformist innovation, and there's nonconformist innovation. And organizations have to decide to what extent is this going to be part of our strategy and how much do we pursue them and so forth. So the final thing that's very important about the point you raised is this. Every organization, from a solo practitioner, as I am, to a huge behemoth, have ideal customers. And you have to focus on your ideal customer. If you take on some other customers or peripheral or whatever, that's fine. But the one thing worse than no business is bad business. Hmm. And the smaller a business is right down to a solo practitioner, the more likely it is to accept bad business because it wants to put food on the table. Right. And it gets into a survival mentality. Even when you don't need a survival mentality, you're well past surviving. Mm-hmm. So organizations make a mistake. And this is why strategically you need to look at these, these strategic factors I talk about in the book. Organizations make a mistake in not focusing on their ideal customer, where the real heavy hitting is, where the real profits are, and instead casting a net that's too wide. Mm-hmm. There was an example you used about Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks related to coffee drinkers. Yeah. I thought that was a great, because they have different ideal clients. Right. And even though you could offer them, a business might say, hey, free coffee, you can have this coffee. I think they did do that. Well, that was the experiment, right? Say more. You could talk about that. Tell it better. Because I thought that was a great example. They did a psychological experiment in marketing and they took a hundred loyal Dunkin' Donuts people who only drank a Dunkin' Donuts said, well, buy you coffee for a month free, but you have to drink at Starbucks. And they did the same with a fiercely lost Starbucks people. And the idea was after a month, you'd see how many people from each side went to the other side. And the result was zero, which shocked all the sociologists. I mean, they said to be 5%, 10%, zero. So when they interviewed people qualitatively, the Dunkin' Donuts people said about Starbucks, I felt like I was intruding in someone's living room. They said there were couches and the choices were bewildering. What the hell is almond milk? You know, then they said to the Starbucks people, well, what'd you think about that? And they said, are you kidding for mica countertops? What is that? You know, they didn't have double soy espresso. 
So what you had here was two different tribes, really. They gathered around their own totems. They had their own value system, their own beliefs, but they were tribes. You don't go to the other tribe. And that was a very, very useful experiment and great learning there. And so it would behoove Duncan and Starbucks zero to try to attract that other side. And so the idea is find your ideal customers and expand them, not the non-ideal. It's just one social proof here. If you look at the most outstanding, strongest radio ratings for talk radio, you know, I guess it was maybe Rush Limbaugh or Don Imus or Howard Stern, you know, people like that. They never tried to convert any listeners. They knew who their crowd was and they spoke to their crowd. And that's all they did and it made them more and more successful. Mm-hmm. And so that's the value of the ideal customer. Even though you're pissing off other, you know, because to do that would be to dilute their message. They're in infl- you know, that's what they were good at. Yeah. I, you know what? I have never worried. I have the strongest independent consulting brand in the world. And I have never worried about people liking me. What I concern about is people respecting me. Yeah. Now, if you want to like me, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but if you want unconditional love, get a dog. Yeah. I have two dogs. <laughs> you get your love there. <laughs> I can appreciate that. I often say that to leaders, like you actually so busy trying to get people to like you. That's actually not the point of leadership. No, it isn't. No, no. it isn't. And you want people to respect you. And sometimes that means they're not going to like you. And that's okay. You know, I've had to tell very powerful, high level people, you can't do that. That's wrong. Yeah. And they'll say, well, okay, let's just talk. But no, we're not going to talk about it. You cannot do that. I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. 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 I guess you have, you have been willing to be fired. Have you ever been fired for? Oh, you? yeah. I won't bore you with it, but I was fired in 1985 by a, an owner of a company. They brought me up to be president of the a consulting firm. I was there for 15 months. We hated each other. He fired me. When you get fired, you get either angry or distraught. And I got really, really angry. And I said to my wife, you know, I'm going out on my own. I said, no morons going to ever fire me again. And she said, she had her finger right in my face. And she said, okay, but you better get serious. And I realized that A, this is a relationship business. And B, I was only going to charge for value, never for time or people in a room or anything like that. And those two decisions saved my life. And I never looked back. Yeah. Have you had a client fire you because you've given such frank feedback to them? Because I think that's what stops consultants doing that. Nope. I've had clients really angry with me. And I've had clients who tried to contest my advice and my findings, but I've never been fired. No one has ever asked me for their money back. And I make a guarantee if the quality of my work isn't what you expected, I'll give you your money back. In other words, if I breach confidentiality, if I don't meet deadlines, if I do what I say, that's fine. But you can't get upset with me by my results because my results are objective. That's true. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We're going to be wrapping up. If you were talking to an executive team who is struggling right now in the changing market, what's your two minutes? Pitch it to them. Yeah. Advice. Other than buy your book, which is what <laughs> <but it's laughs> we'll make sure that's known. But what would you give them that, you know, practical well, you know <laughs> Books create awareness, but consulting and coaching creates applications. So buy my book, but hire me. Yeah, Right. Here's my two minute advice. I would say, ironically, you have to keep things simple. You can't let them become complex. And by simple, I mean this. Who do you want to be tomorrow? What is your raison d'etre? Who do you want to be? And then decide what that will look like and what's required. And that means you use, I call it the SIR system, but the SIR system looks like this. What do we have in place now that will sustain us to this future we want to become? What do we have now that must be improved if we're going to get there? And what do we have now that has to be completely replaced to get there? 
And so sometimes that's people, sometimes it's technology, you know, sometimes it's a brand, whatever it is. But if you look at what you've got that's good, you want to sustain it, what you've got that needs improvement and what you've got that needs to be jettisoned, those are simple questions to ask. There's hard actions to take, but that's what will get you there. Excellent. Well, you yeah. are a delight to talk to. I love all your examples. And so she likes you. That's good. <laughs> but I know you okay. You respect me. I do, I do respect you a long time ago. So, and can you let our listeners know how they can find you and get more information if about you? If they do decide to hire you after, <laughs> after the book. It's alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. And there are free newsletters, free podcasts, free videos, a lot of free stuff on the site. Help yourself. Excellent. Okay. You, All right. It's great. I respect you, Alan. Just letting you know that. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. And I've come to like you. And so... <laughs> Ooh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Yeah, take care. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Susan here. As a coach, a lot of my time is spent helping clients speak up in a direct and honest way in their relationships at home and at work. Chris Marie and I decided to create a speak up kit to help you do that for yourself. It's the best of our best work that we've gathered to help you. To learn more, go to thriveinc.com forward slash speak up. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash S-P-E-A-K-U-P.